Welcome to another episode of Scary Stories, featuring yours truly, Baines. This one's called, At My Window. When I was little, it was just my mom and I in this tiny, tiny house in a small town. I have a freakishly good memory, so I can clearly remember the layout of my tiny room, which was the laundry room from the previous owners. It was long and narrow, with just enough room for my crib against one wall, and a window high up on the other. Now I've always hated windows at night. I won't look out them. I keep the curtains shut or run past them. My fear has always been, I'll look out and see a face staring back at me. After a bad breakup in my early 20s, I moved back home with my mom. And after she observed this behavior, I told her my weird paranoia. She kind of laughed and proceeded to tell me when I was about two, I would scream and scream that there was a man in my window I had nightmares, so she didn't think anything of it, you know. Until one night, she came in to shut me up, and there he was. A fucking man, staring through the window. I looked at her like she was nuts. How could I not have known this? Then she continued to tell me that the man was the father of one of my really good friends growing up. He was known for peeping in a single woman's windows. She also didn't tell me I had a benign heart murmur, and when the doctor discovered it once again in my early 20s, that scared the shit out of me too. Thanks, Mom. 911 calling. This took place when I was about 10 years old. My mom had rather quickly filed for a divorce, but she only had a part-time job and made very little money, so finding a place to stay that was affordable and available immediately was tough. A friend of ours told her that she and her husband had a little mobile home that was currently sitting empty and we could rent it practically for free, until we figured out something else. I immediately didn't like this house. Part of this, I'm sure was due to my parents, abrupt divorce and having my life turned upside down, but it was also just the house itself. We lived in a mountain town and this mobile home was way up a steep mile long driveway beautiful pine trees surrounded it but the house itself looked abandoned and out of place it had two bedrooms and two bathrooms so my brother and i shared a room and my mom took the bedroom with the attached bedroom bathroom it was a very yeah 70s home with wood paneling and dated fixtures there were also areas that showed strange damage like holes in the wall that were badly patched up. For whatever reason, I immediately refused to use the hallway bathroom. I wouldn't even step into it. My mom never really asked me why, or questioned it, but let me use her bathroom anyways. Well, my mom was gone a lot, trying to find whatever work she could, so I would be home a lot. After school and on the weekends, each time I received the 911 call, I was by myself. My mom always told us not to answer the door, but we should always answer the phone in case it was her. So when the phone rang one afternoon, I figured it would be my mom, since no one else really had our number anyways yet. There was a woman on the phone who sounded very concerned. Hello, is this uh, 911? Returning your call, we received your call, but we got disconnected, the woman said. I immediately got a sick feeling. I told her that I did not call 911. 
and she asked me if there was anyone else in the house who might have called. I said I was home alone, but I started to get really worried that maybe I wasn't. She said she would dispatch police to our address to, just to make sure everything was okay. At that point I was terrified to be in the house. So I sat outside and nervously waited for the police, who showed up in about 15 to 20 minutes. The officer asked me if I had called 911, and I said no, but they claimed I had called them. The officer just sort of shrugged and said, this kind of thing happens sometimes. They say that it can't, that the numbers can't get mixed up, but it happens. He did a cursory glance around the outside of the house and then left. I tried to convince myself that the officer was right. It was just a mixed up phone call and hopefully whoever did actually got the help they needed. About a month later, the same thing happened. I got another phone call from 911 saying they had received a phone call from my number. I told them again that it must have been a mistake. The woman on the fold scolded me a bit, telling me that 911 was not something to play around with, and I was preventing people from getting help. She didn't dispatch any police this time. Again, I was really worried that someone was in my house, so I cautiously checked and made sure all the doors were still locked. I don't know why, but I always kept the hallway bathroom door closed. Maybe because of the eerie feeling I got from it. As I was checking the house, I just knew someone was in that bathroom. I was terrified. Part of me felt like I needed to open the door to check. Maybe to prove myself wrong, but I was too afraid. So I just sat in the living room, watching that door. It was so quiet in the house, that after a few moments, I swore I started to hear faint little sounds coming from inside like a kind of shuffling noise. I asked my mom to check the bathroom when she got home and she quickly looked inside. She made me come and look to see that it was empty and I was letting my imagination get the better of me. The 911 calls happened three more times over the coming months. And only when I was home alone, the fourth time, the dispatcher told me I could face criminal charges for what I was doing, and they would contact my parents. I hung up the phone sobbing and terrified. I had that feeling like someone was in the house again, but if I called 911, they probably wouldn't even show up. I felt like the girl who cried wolf, only it wasn't me. It was like someone was playing a horrible, twisted joke on me. I sat and watched the bathroom door again, hearing noises like someone dragging their fingers across the door. I decided my mom was right, and I was probably just letting my imagination get away. I decided to try and leave the bathroom door open, so I wouldn't get so freaked out by the thought that someone was in there. Then I got the fifth 911 call. This time though, after I hung up the phone with the dispatcher, the bathroom door slammed shut. I ran. I ran all the way down our steep driveway 
and found a place to wait till my mom pulled into the driveway. When she arrived, she was angry with me for leaving the house, but she saw how upset I was. I think maybe she thought I was acting out due to the stress of the divorce. I refused to be alone in the house again though, so we worked it out so I would stay later at school or go to a nearby friend's house till she get off work. Not long after this, we got a notice from my mom's friend that we needed to move out of the house because her because she, her mom, needed a place to stay. I was so grateful to be moving out. I told my mom she needed to tell her friend that something was wrong in the house or someone was in the house. But my mom thought that was a ridiculous way to pay someone's generosity back. I moved a, ro- a lot around the next few years and tried to forget about that house. It wasn't until I was older that I really thought about it. I witnessed an accident and had to call 911, and the fear and paranoia all came flooding back. I decided to do some research, which, honestly, I wish I had done it before. A few years before we moved in, a woman was killed in that house in some kind of domestic dispute. It was days, though, before she was found shut up in the bathroom. My baby. I will preface this with the fact that unnatural movements freak me out. A lot. My husband and I were laying in bed one night when we heard a noise. Nothing crazy. Just a small rustling noise. We argued over who should check it out. Decided it was nothing and then tried to go back to sleep. But then we heard the noise again. What the hell? You go. No, you go. While we were arguing, in whispers, because obviously my daughter's bedroom had an adjoining door, we heard it again, but near the foot of her bed. I turned on my phone to use as a light and saw my daughter on the floor. She was on all fours, cocked her head, turned her face toward the light at a most disturbing angle, and then fucking skittered on all fours back into her mom and into her bed. My husband and I were absolutely horrified, and she was sleepwalking, and had no recollection. She did creepy sleepwalky things after that for years, usually while we were watching scary movies or lying in bed in the dark. Kids are the worst. A different kind of grind. I've only told this story to my closest friends. I haven't even confided in my sister, for fears of the obvious shame. Please buckle in because this tale needs to be told in length. I went to college in a Chicago university, which has a large gay community. Now, gay men are true champions of leveraging technology to their sexual provenance. Grindr was on the map as the go-to hookup app years before the straights got into a tizzy about Tinder. I normally used Grinder to expedite getting my rocks off, but I was having an off week and decided to use a platform that's more to the point, Craigslist. I posted a listing looking for a hookup with a good looking, slightly older man. And within a few hours, I settled on a fit 30 something. This was a Friday night. He agreed to pick me up at my apartment building. 
Then we would take me back to his place and we'd fool around. He picks me up at my nearest intersection. He's just as attractive as his picture, yes, but something's off. Personality-wise, I can only describe it as he was a little off. But he wasn't off, in a slower, stupid way. In fact, it was the total opposite. He was incredibly nice, his voice was kind and light, but there was something too practiced behind it. In retrospect, the more I think about it, the more it feels rehearsed calculated, like a razor blade hiding in a popsicle. He asked me a little bit about myself, but then he didn't respond when I would ask him the same questions. He'd just smile and laugh it off. What I did manage to get out of him was that he worked in real estate. Remember this. He had told me earlier through small, for, or through email, that he lived on X and Y Street. I wrote this off as a blip, originally, because those two streets ran parallel, and he essentially told me that he lived in the middle of the road. We were in his car for about eight minutes, and he had already passed those two streets by a few blocks. I lived in a popular walkable area, and at this moment I told myself, you can get out of the car now, and you can run home, you're still close enough, but I ignored my gut. I told myself that I was overanalyzing this. We get to his place, after a 35 minute car ride, we're out of the city and in the neighborhood. Right away his house is clean, but again it's too clean. Everything was so polished, nothing out of place. There was a Dexter level of cleanliness to it. We go into the kitchen, which was in the back of the house. After a minute or two of more awkward conversation, I wrap my hands around him and kiss him. Except he doesn't receive the kiss. My lips made contact with his, but his lips remain flat and at rest. There is a moment of pause, and he smiles around my kiss. This wasn't a friendly smile. This was a knowing smirk. He tells me that this is his first time and he's very, very nervous. He excuses himself and runs down to the basement. The stairs down are next to the kitchen. They are not a straight staircase. They turn at a right angle halfway down, which prevents me from seeing what's downstairs. He's down there for a good five to 10 minutes. I hear stuff rustling around, metal things clanking together. I yell down to get back up. The sound stops. No reply. Then it starts again. I run to the bathroom and lock the door. I think about jumping out the window. It's a ranch. I text a friend. He tells me to get out, but I don't want to offend my host. There's a knock on the bathroom door. And he says to meet him in the bedroom. The kitchen is next to the bedroom. I consider pocketing a kitchen knife. He comes back up, and we finally start fooling around. He won't kiss me though, and he keeps telling me that this is his first time doing this. Weird thing that it is, he's oddly comfortable with my body, and he's actually good at gay stuff. He gets very aggressive, and at one point, I looked around the room and spotted a blue glass vase. I tell myself that 
If I needed to, I could use this as a weapon if need be. He doesn't finish, but I ask if I may finish on him. He agrees. He freaks out after I do. He gets up, and without saying a word, and completely naked, he walks back down to the basement. I put on my underwear and walk to the edge of the stairs. I hear whimpers and whispers. There is no one downstairs except for him. Of this I am sure. The clanking metal sounds continue. They're nothing loud. They sound like a scalpel being placed on a metal surgery tray or tools bouncing around in a toolbox. He's downstairs for 5, 10, 15 minutes now. I'm fully dressed. I'm giving my friend a play to play through the texts and he tells me to drop him a pin. I don't know how so he walks me through the process. When I finally do send him my location, he calls me. You have to get out of that house now. Why, I ask. Do you know where you are? You're out by O'Hare. My farted flight completely kicks in. Now understanding that I'm stranded in an area that has no access to public transportation and I don't have a car. I yell downstairs to see if he's alright. All sounds stop. No reply. For a moment I think about grabbing his keys from his jacket, driving his car a few blocks from my place, and leaving it wherever. At this point I yell down, I'll be waiting outside. I hear what sounds like chains dropping and footsteps coming heavily up the stairs. I run to the door, fumbling with the lock, until I rip it open and get outside. He was naked last time I saw him, so I figured getting dressed will at least slow him down. I freeze for a moment, and then I took off running. I made it two blocks away before I broke down crying and called an Uber. This was February in Chicago, and it was maybe minus 22 degrees or 22 degrees outside and snowy. At this point, mystery man tries calling me, and I hang up. He texts, Haha, where'd you go? I say that I got a ride and that I'm okay, and I block his number. I head between two cars as a used lot while waiting 30 minutes for an Uber to pick me up. I saw Mystery Man's car driving around. Two Ubers had already cancelled, and I had to call the third Uber to make him promise that he wouldn't cancel on me because I was in danger. I block out this experience mostly. There are some nights when I begin to go over all the details in my head. It destroys me and turns my blood cold, and it's the little red flags that deeply unnerve me. 1. I'm convinced that we were in a model home, or at least a home that he was selling. Number 2. He was gay and comfortable with himself, but I believe he was referring to something far more sinister when he was saying that this was his first time. Number 3. The smartest thing I did among many foolish choices was not going down to that basement. I do not think I would have come back upstairs if I had. Number four. There's a moment in the end of the girl with a dragon tattoo where a man goes with the killer into his house, knowing by now that he is the serial killer, and the killer says something along the lines of, you knew, but you still came inside. We're too afraid 
of being rude to go without animal instinct and get away from danger, I experienced this firsthand. Number five. I always think back to the story that was submitted here last year about a man who was almost killed by John Wayne Gacy at a hotel as a teenager. He says that one day, he saw Gacy's fact on the TVs after being caught, and he had a total breakdown, knowing that almost something became of him. Something deep inside me tells me that I may not have a moment like that myself one day. A real fixer-upper. About five years ago, my husband Adam and I decided that it was finally time to start looking to purchase a house. You know, we had always asked about buying an older fixer-upper home because we've had the idea that there were more charm and character in the house. Plus, we can appreciate a place that has its own quirks and we love the thought of turning something run down into something beautiful again. With that being said, I grew up in a pretty rural farming town in Indiana that had, you know, more than its fair share of rundown houses. The surrounding areas had started to boom a little bit, with farmland being sold off and turned into new factory locations, along with the new subdivisions for them. People coming to work for them, you know, I thought it'd be a great place to start on our house hunt. I figured that we'd be a lot closer to civilization than I used to be growing up, but not so much that we'd be living a stone's throw away from our neighbors. Adam and I decided to take a drive one summer Sunday afternoon so I could show him some of the back roads of my hometown and to also see what kind of properties we checked out online, like in person. As we were turning off the main road through town, and further on to a more secluded country road, we noticed that there were very few houses, but on the very first house on the left was completely abandoned. We pulled into a small patch of the yard where the grass was the shortest and where a gravel driveway used to be to further investigate. It was painted a deep green color, which made it almost invisible against the tall grass and thicker bushes and weeds that had grown up around it. There was a massive tree in the front yard, whose branches and leaves helped to camouflage this place even further. The house looked as if it were at least a hundred years old. It looked like it had sat empty for years. If it looked neglected, weather-worn, and in need of major love, in that moment, it was perfect. There was nothing but woods across the street and no neighboring houses in sight. So Adam and I thought it would probably wouldn't hurt if we just trespassed a little bit. I completely justified my reasoning by thinking, well, we're interested in buying the property. We're not here to cause trouble. We're doing something a favor. We could take this burden of a house off of someone's hands. We just need to take a look around first. That's all. Plus, there weren't anybody there to say no trespassing and no trespassing signs were anywhere to be found, right? So I was perfectly armed with my newfound inflated ignorance and arrogance to assess this property. We walked carefully through the bush, toward the left side of the house, when we noticed a well that was standing complete with bucket, rope, handle, and the original overhang. My excitement for a picturesque country house was building. Directly across from the well, there was a side entrance into the house through what looked like an added-on mudroom. 
The screen door to the mudroom was closed. However, there was a wooden door behind it that was half open. This was our not really intrusive because we aren't breaking anything to get in, way in. It was probably in the mid 90s outside that day. So when we entered Adam first, we were met with thick, stifling heat. The kind that holds so much humidity that it almost takes your breath away. What we thought was a mudroom was an extended pantry area or canning kitchen. It was tiny with one window, an old rusted sink, a small stove, and the walls still had shelves upon shelves of canned and spoiled vegetables in jars. I remember thinking, oh yeah, this will be great. I totally remember how to can, and we can have a garden, and, and, insert all kinds of other giggity thoughts that women have while in the throes of houses hunting, you know. It also had the doorway into the main part of the house, and this is where my election came to an end, and allegation came to an end. Through the doorway was the kitchen. What remained of the cashiers and the cabinets and sink were against the wall on the left. But they were either broken or hanging on the dead of life, or both. The kitchen connected to a wide open living area, with one side having walls streaked with black that led up to a half sunken grey ceiling. There had been a fire at some point. The windows on that wall were filthy, covered in dust or ash that made the room much darker than it should have been in the middle of the day. My heart sank. I knew we wouldn't be able to afford a costly repair of a house fire. But I kept that disappointing thought to myself. The open living room had not one stench of furniture. You know, save one for small wooden rocking house that a child would have. The floor was littered with magazines as if someone had a giant stack of them and just threw them up in the air to see where they'd land. Curious as to what the former house owners looked like in regards to reading material, I decided to check them out. Almost every single magazine was related to dolls in some way. Porcelain doll collecting, Barbie dolls, making dolls by hand, clothing for dolls. I felt a little bit creeped out by it though, especially under the surveillance of the rocking horses dead painted on stair. But I figured that an old lady must have lived in the house before. Then I created a self-medicating idea that her husband probably died and this was the only hobby she had to pass her time. We decided to check out another room that was connected to the half-turned burned living room. Through the doorway, to the left, was a weird combination of a molded stand-up shower with handicap handles and assisted toilet seat to a divider down the middle by a drywall. In the right was a wall made entirely of built-up hook shelves. The shelves were full of paperwork, manila envelopes, books, and even more magazines. It struck us as a pretty weird setup, but though these people must have really loved to read while sitting on the toilet. My husband and I thought we could find out the previous owners and figure out, you know, since some of the paperwork on top of the stack seemed to be old bills, we wanted to see if we could look up property records. At least now we would have a name to go on. I grabbed a stack of papers and began to flip through them. When about halfway through the change from being old telephone bills to printed out colored pictures from the internet of porcelain dolls. I put the stack of papers back on the shelf. 
and picked up a small red five-star notebook. I started from the beginning, casually leafing through and seeing daily entries of medication taken, blood pressure, and glucose measurements written in a neat hand about 20 pages in the entries started to change entirely. They became crude, crude drawings of twisted faces done in red ink. The faces had horns or bloody fangs. Then full-on drawings of devils appeared in the page after I wanted to believe that a child had picked this up to doodle in. But I felt that this was something much different than that. After the drawings, the notebook became someone's personal information, written in what I assumed was an elderly man's cursive. It told of how he knew he was coming toward the end of his life, and how he remembered being just a young boy when his mother passed away. He described in detail how he'd wake up for his mother, and his mother was held in the front room of his home, and how during those nights, he crawled on top of his mother's body in her coffin to sleep. I couldn't believe what I was reading, even though I had been sweating from the thickness in the air. A sudden rush of goosebumps came over me. I immediately showed it to Adam, flipping to the pages of devils and snarled faces and then read aloud. This stranger's memories of his mother just to see if it was the same the second time around. After I finished, he said, Well, this shot got a whale a lot weirder. Nodding to what he held in his hands while I was reading the notebook, he continued rifling through the mountains of papers. One stack not only had more printed pictures of dolls, but now they contained pictures of real women in torture bondage, ball gags, or electrical tape placed over their mouths jumper cables, twisting their nipples, being hogtied with rope. Sometimes there was more than one woman in the picture. It felt as if a brick had been tossed into my stomach. For some, those images wouldn't be disturbing, but in the context of our visit, my panic was starting to grow. I was torn between wanting to find out more and getting the fuck out. Adam reassured me that while it was on the creepy side, it wasn't anything to necessarily lose my shit over, since the woman didn't seem to be suffering or bleeding. The burned out living area was separated from the rest of the house by a staircase. The staircase had a room directly across from it, and a small hallway on the other side that led to the main room at the front of the house. We debated on going up to the second floor, but decided against it since it already felt as if we were roasting in an oven and were unsure of the stability of the second story. Going into the room across the staircase, we noticed a few more doll magazines on the floor, but not near the number of the other rooms held. There were scattered plastic doll pieces here and there, random arms and heads. To the left was the original fireplace with a couple tiny vases on the mantel. Smack dab in the middle was a framed picture of an elderly couple, smiling and happy. These certainly weren't the type of people that would have pictures of women bound and gagged hidden away in their bathroom. These people could have been my grandparents, 
I thought to myself. To the right was a big bay window, and smack dab in the middle was a yellowed piece of paper with faded black printed handwriting on it. It was for anyone on the outside of the house to see before it became overgrown. Reading it backwards from its side, it said, If you're here to talk about Jesus, go away. That's kind of hilarious, Adam said, after reading it to himself. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it kind of is. I half chuckled. But something in my brain was now starting to nag me even more. Something wasn't computing correctly for me. Thinking back, my mind was putting together that an elderly couple in this town would more than likely be pretty religious, and by the super small chance that they weren't, it would have been gossiped about had someone seen that in the window. It was as if the house had held two very different personalities within. I told my husband that I just wanted to go into the one last room down the hallway, and then I'd be very ready to leave. Going down the small hallway, it became darker and cooler. It was a relief from the oppressive heat that we had been dealing with since first stepping inside. The shade from the giant tree in the front yard had blocked out a lot of the sunlight, making it about 20 degrees cooler. But we soon realized that wasn't the only reason the part of the house is temperature was much more tolerable. Rounding the corner into the last room, it took me a few seconds for our eyes to adjust to the difference of light, but the change of the air was noticeably different immediately. It was as if we had stepped into a cave. The smell was dark and left a dampness on our skin. Once things came into clear focus, that's when we saw it. The main reason our senses had shifted or so quickly is because there was a large hole in the floor. At first, we thought that this was perhaps the wooden floor was so weak that it had simply caved in on its own, or that the roof had leaked and caused this exact area of floor to rot away. But upon getting closer, it became obvious that this wasn't the case. The hole was about five feet across and went straight down into the earth, with about a two-foot space between the remaining floor and dirt. This hole was there because it was made to be there. My husband and I looked at each other. My heart was racing so fast that I thought it would burst through my chest. And I said aloud to him while pointing, what the fuck is this? Why is this here? I panicked, my breathing becoming more rapid and shallow. Nothing was making sense. And yet, the thoughts that had been running in the background of my brain were all coming together like a jigsaw puzzle. Then we saw them. The worn and faded social security cards. A few old and molded over driver's licenses just thrown around haphazardly. Checkbooks, credit cards, as if someone had emptied their purse and wallet into this room and then just disappeared into the hole. It was overcoming to realize the terror and dread I had felt. I said I had to get out of this house. My skin felt like static 
as if my whole body had just been taken over by the sensation of when your foot falls asleep. I'd been forming in my eyes, and my mind just told me to run. Without having to speak, Adam quickly took me by the arm and led us back down the hallway, through the burned-out living room and kitchen, out the side canning room, and back out into the light of day. We ran back down the mangled and tangled driveway to the car, remembering back. I got the eerie feeling that we weren't the only two people in the house that day, alive or dead. A side note, the house still stands. We never called the police to report us breaking into the house and finding a giant hole in the floor. However, we drove past it about a year later and the large tree in the front yard had all its branches removed and all the windows had been boarded shut and after doing some research, found out the land sits on it is for sale but the house itself has been condemned alright guys I hope you enjoyed those stories remember that I post episodes as much as possible so like always stay tuned and have a wonderful day or night wherever you are This is Baines, signing off.